Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Six, seven years ago, when people were considering for the first time investing in licensed cannabis businesses that aren't legal at the federal level, there was concern, like, am I going to go to jail for being an investor in this business? And so what we've seen over time is that there's enough layers of kind of separation that investors who invest in an LLC, who is then investing in a licensed company, there's enough of a break that the type of impact we're talking about only hits at the corporate level and doesn't ever make its way down to the individual investor level. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. And this is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited today to have Jordan Tritt with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of the Panther Group. Jordan serves as principal and day-to-day manager of two cannabis venture funds and has been investing in the cannabis space since 2014, deploying $30 million across 50 companies. So Jordan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks a lot, Jim. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this topic as well, because I have to admit, I don't know much about investing in cannabis. I've done a couple of lending deals and they both turned out horribly. They were some of my first syndications and they were huge mistakes. So I'm a little bit cautious. But the way we start here is if you could just tell us your journey. How did you get into the cannabis space? What's your financial journey? How did you get to become a syndicator operator in this space? If you can just kind of give us an overview, that's a great place to start. Yeah, sure. So my journey, my life starts in Atlanta, Georgia. Then I went to University of Michigan for undergraduate business school and also received my master's of accounting. I started out in commercial real estate for a couple of years. I went through the financial and real estate crisis back in 2008 and then pivoted to early stage companies, utilizing my background in accounting and finance to help a number of startups raise about 30 million in debt and equity as a senior 
financial and accounting professional within the companies. In 2014, I joined my father, entered the cannabis space as a limited partner in his fund, and then came into the space full-time in late 16. We launched together with two other partners a a venture fund, our first in early 2017, called the Panther Opportunity Fund. We raised $8 and deployed it across 16 companies in the cannabis space. And then in 2020, I started along with my co-founder, Scott Berman, the Panther Group, which is an advisory firm that helps uh, cannabis companies raise capital and also with growth marketing and business improvement solutions. So that's how I got into the advisory side. We continue to raise and deploy capital. So we raised another fund in 2021 called the Panther Micro Fund and are continuing to actively deploy today as well as advise companies in the areas that I mentioned. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. That, that's a good summary. I am going to skip over the part about where you went to college because I, uh, I live in Columbus, Ohio, so we won't have a friendly conversation about that. But we'll move on to the real couple of weeks away from the big game, as they say. Or yeah, the well, game. one of us will be happy and one will be sad by the time this airs. And <laughs> no offense, but I'm hoping I'm on the happy side. So I understand. We'll, uh, we'll let it rest there. I want to get back to the marijuana, right? Why cannabis? What's the deal with cannabis? Why are you in investing in cannabis? What's kind of an overview, cannabis 101 of the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So I come from a very entrepreneurial family. I mentioned in the intro, my father. So he's been a physician for 40 years, also has taken a company public, was chairman CEO for five years, and then has been doing a lot of early stage investing since 2001. So this idea of getting into a space where I could really make my mark and like come full bore with the skill sets and the relationships and the experience I had was you know, something that really resonated with me when I went and first got exposed to the industry in like 2016. And in a lot of ways still today, it's a lot of early stage companies, which as I mentioned, I've got a lot of experience with. It's an industry that's growing still probably somewhere between 20 and 30% a year, which you know that's been going on for eight straight years. So it's certainly got a lot of tailwinds behind it. Me personally, I, I believe in plants. I've seen in both firsthand and secondhand a lot of benefits that come from it from a, a medicinal standpoint. I've always been looking for a certain industry that I can make my mark in. So cannabis is one where I saw huge opportunities and just kind of the natural evolution of my father getting into it. And then I went out in 2016 to the big cannabis conference and I frankly just really fell in love with the people. Everyone comes from different backgrounds for the most part. So most people have been doing something else and then now have taken their experience and are applying it to the opportunities within the cannabis space. So I liked that idea. It's a very collaborative industry, which personally I'm passionate about collaboration and working together. Very open-minded group of people, which I like, and it's just continued to present a lot of opportunities and challenges as well. But that's, I think, part of the fun of being an entrepreneur. And so there's been a lot of states that have decriminalized marijuana recreationally or and medicinally and seemed like that that was a wave coming and then this latest election it seemed like there were more states that said no than said yes but at the same time the current administration made some changes to their outlook and kind of wiped some records clean can you talk about that part of it how states are recognizing it and passing laws that it's okay it's still against the law federally but the government has made some changes to that so can you just talk about the government and the regulations around it a little bit 
Yeah, sure. So just as a kind of quick history lesson, the first state to legalize cannabis for medical was California back in 1996. And not a lot happened between 1996 and then 2012 when, you know, between 12 and 14, when states like Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, Washington all passed adult use efforts. And when I say adult use, you know, that's other terms are used that is recreational is sometimes used for that. So adult use and the medical side. So at this point, after yesterday's or a few days ago's election, there are now, I believe, 20 or so states that have passed adult use and then another like 17 or 18 that have passed medical. So there are at this point 38 or close to 40 states that have some sort of cannabis regulation that is either been passed or will be passed pretty much split between medical and adult use. So that trend has continued to evolve every election cycle and and sometimes in between election cycles. I'm not a political expert, but I do, I guess I've kind of started to understand that there are multiple ways that these laws can be passed, you know, whether it's through uh, ballot initiatives or sometimes, you know, governors can come in and, and establish rules. So there's multiple constituents involved that can influence laws getting set up in each of these states. As you pointed out, there is a clear dichotomy between states and the federal government stance. So dating back to like I think 1970s or so, cannabis became schedule one drug, which by definition says it has no medical efficacy and is, I think, considered something that can be abused. So that's where, from a federal standpoint, right now, that's where it sits. You mentioned President Biden. So a few weeks ago, he made the announcements around pardoning at the federal level, cannabis convictions, recommending at the state level that government look at pardoning at the state level. And then he also initiated a, or recommended a review to be started around whether cannabis should be a schedule one drug or it should be a lower schedule or, or descheduled completely or legalized. So that actually, believe it or not, I've been in the industry for six or seven years. That's the first piece of good news or movement that's happened at the federal level in six or seven years. So everything that's been driving the growth for this industry has been at the state level, and it's gotten it from zero in legal sales in 2012 to now more than $30 billion in legal medical and adult use sales across the country, which has translated into billions of dollars of tax revenue for the states, which is definitely one of the motivations for these states to pass it is another revenue source. What's the total market then? Because I know there's still, I assume there's still people buying it illegally, right? So what's the whole market? If they were to just legalize it, and I'm sure the black market wouldn't go away the next day, but just assume it would. What's the total market, do you think? I think, because we don't know, but I think it's probably somewhere around $100 billion as we sit today. And just given, I think, where the acceptance of the country has gone, you now have, I think, about two-thirds of the country population that's in favor of full adult use legalization at the federal level. That's closer to 90% that would prove it for medical uses. So you've got a lot of support, much more. That that number from a adult use standpoint 10 years ago was under 50%. So you've gone from under 50% to now two-thirds over the course of 10 years. So it is something that is becoming more accepted. And because of that, 
I think the market size over time will just naturally grow as the stigma changes, as people start to get exposed to cannabis and use it as an alternative to alcohol, to opioids, to other cannabinoids. I don't want to get too detailed, but basically the point is, is there's a number of different prescription drugs that could also be potentially substituted over time as we do research and understand the medical efficacy of the cannabis plant and different derivations of it. And how do these investments work, being that it's technically illegal at the federal level? And I don't know if it's still the case, but several years ago, banking was a big issue. It it had to be all cash because banks wouldn't allow the businesses to operate or they wouldn't fund them or allow them to deposit monies and all that. Can you just talk about how the it can be illegal federally and legal on the state level and then how the banking and all that financial stuff is working out? Yes, sure. So in terms of the federal illegality of it, it's even that is a little bit <laughs> confusing because you have a something in the tax code called 280E, which is a section of the IRS tax code, which says that if you are engaging in federally illegal activity, but you have revenue being generated from that illegal activity, you are responsible for paying taxes on that. And this dates back to actually like Al Capone, some of his things. Now, there are disadvantages of that tax code, which says you have to pay taxes, but in a normal business, right, you make $100, maybe your cost of goods sold is $50, and then you've got $20 of sales and marketing, general administrative expenses, you're left with $30. That's your taxable income. In cannabis, same $100, all you can deduct is $50 of cost of goods. So your taxable income would be $50, even if as a business, you've got another $50 going out the door for sales, marketing, et cetera. So within the federal setup of it, you know, it's already kind of this confusing aspect because there's an acknowledgement that you've got something that's illegal from a federal perspective, but also at the same time, they're expecting you to tax, paying taxes. And and not only that, they've disadvantaged people for the operating in this federally illegal industry. At the state level, again, I'm not a political expert, but there's some sort of, basically the federal government has limited resources. So they've taken the stance that even though they are not allowing this to be approved at the federal level, they're giving states, they're taking a hands-off approach and saying, if you want to legalize this at the state level, we're not going to use any resources to go and prosecute anyone who's operating. So back in 2016, when Jeff Sessions was the attorney general, he actually, for a short period of time, he actually threatened that he was going to start applying pressure and pushing on the states to prosecute legally operating cannabis businesses. And it ended up going nowhere because, again, as I mentioned, states are behind the states either because of maybe some social, political reasons or because of economic reasons, taxes, jobs, et cetera. They've said, hey, we want to allow this in our state. We want it to be a source of revenue instead of it being on the illicit side. We want to bring it into the regulated side, make sure that this is, these products are being tested and So there's motivations from the state level of why they want to do this. You have the federal level that's taken this handoff approach. And so that's what's allowed the states to continue to operate. As you mentioned, it does get kind of confusing because on the banking side, a number of 
because these banks are, most of them are federally chartered, or maybe not most of them, but there's a lot of the bigger banks that we know of are federally chartered. So the banks that are serving the industry primarily are state banks and credit unions that are not at the federal level, because at the federal level, you've got this, in general, you have this usually documentation and rules that says you can't engage in any activity that is illegal at the federal level. That's like bank charters and just a lot of different institutions have that standard approach that says anything at the federal level is illegal, you can't engage in. And so this is one where it sits at that kind of threshold of it being federal legal, illegal, but legal at the state level. So it's, I wish I had an easy, clear answer to it, but it's just not. It's been part of the challenge of the space is that because it's not legal at the federal level, the impact is one of the impacts, as you mentioned, one is that there's a lot of cash because it's just more challenging and banks have some of these state banks and credit unions can't handle the volume or so you've got those challenges. And then you also have the fact that as a cannabis business, you have to set up operations in each individual state. So you can't just have like a central west and east location and produce product and ship it from there. You cannot move any cannabis products across state lines because of the federal illegality. So you can only keep that product within the the borders of the state, which creates its own challenges as well. So there's a lot of individual impacts that all add up to it being, frankly, you know, challenging. So you got this situation where you've industry that's growing at 30%, but yet because of this federal state situation, it does end up being fairly challenging and limits the resources that companies have available to grow. When you invest in some kind of cannabis operation, is one of the risks that you need to evaluate the danger that perhaps a new administration will come in and try to crack down on the states for this illegal activity that the feds are like, it's still illegal federally. Yeah, it's a good question. To me, it was, I mentioned the Jeff Sessions, it it was more relevant six years ago. And I could, this is just my opinion, but at that time, we're now up to 40 states. So as more and more states pass it, I think it's harder and harder for the federal government to come and squash this. So using the analogy of the toothpaste out of the tube, I felt like that was the case in 2016. There was a little bit of a pause when Jeff Sessions took over and said, hey, we're going to start treating the states differently. And then very quickly, the states, no, we're not participating because in order for what Sessions was trying to do, in order for that to happen, he was going to need the support from the state's prosecution and, and police and all that. And It's just, I mean, you look at what President Biden just did. He's looking to divert less resources towards prosecuting people who are consuming or possession of cannabis. So I think more and more it becomes evident that this is an inevitability, how quickly it happens and stuff and what we can do to impact the speed. That's more of the question that's talked about within the industry than what happens if something at the federal level that will derail it all. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy 
until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Hi, I'm Matt Piccini, here to help you learn to produce passive income, write your own story, and direct your dollars toward positive change. My book, Backstage Guide to Real Estate, will take you through the highlights and the lowlights of my adventures in real estate, starting as a rank amateur just leaving the acting world, all the way to where I am now, an owner of thousands of apartment units across the country. This book is my story in passive real estate investment. Yours will be different reflecting your priorities, goals, and sense of purpose, but I'm hoping that our stories will share one thing, the belief that passive investment is the road to financial freedom, and that you can use that freedom to improve your own life and the life of your family and leave your community, your country, and even the world a little better than you found it. Are you ready? <laughs> Good. Then go to Pacheni.com to get more info on the book. And when we're talking about the investment opportunities, what's the difference between, you know, I know there's a lot of public stocks that are traded. There's also private equity, which is kind of what left field investors, you know, we're more interested in the private equity side. What's the difference in opportunity and return? And I haven't followed it widely, but a few years ago, the public stocks did really well. And then all of a sudden they didn't and the industry is growing, but the publicly traded entities aren't doing very well. So I know that's like six questions in one, but can you just kind of talk about the opportunities, private versus public? Yes, sure. So as you pointed out that both are available for investment. What's interesting, again, just kind of saying the landscape about the public is that the vast majority of companies operating in the cannabis space are private. I think it's 95 plus percent, you know, maybe even more. So very few as a whole are actually on the public market. So if you're looking to get exposure to the space, most of the companies that are actually operating are private. And the reason, again, is because of the federal illegality. If you're a plant touching business, if you actually touch cannabis product, you can't list on any U.S. exchange. So that's not available. And then if you list on the exchanges that are available, like the Canadian Securities Exchange there's much less institutional support for stocks. So the only people really buying the stocks are retail investors. And that's just not enough support and capital for these companies at the public level. So the challenge for the public companies, again, is a lot of times the main reason you go public is to access the public capital markets. That's not really a benefit in the cannabis space yet. So therefore, most companies continue to operate on a private basis. Plus, again, I mean, it's challenging enough to run, as I said, a cannabis business. Then you also have that full-time job of running a public company and stock support and all that. So most companies have opted to stay private. In terms of kind of what's happened in the public market, I agree with you. There was a lot of excitement, enthusiasm in like the 2014-15 Time frame after the states on the West Coast had legalized and you started to see the green wave shifting to it's in the middle of the country like Michigan or Illinois and Ohio and Pennsylvania states that maybe you were just passing medical, but still were moving forward and had big population. And so I think there was a, an exuberance there, unfortunately. And this also was in the Canadian market, both the Canadian companies as well as the U.S. public companies have largely, largely underperformed relative to expectations and pro formas and that sort of thing. So 
what you've had is limited investor base that's now kind of looked at this industry and said, hey, what's actually going on here? A lot of these companies aren't meeting their expectations. Their financial performance is poor. They don't have a lot of availability of capital coming. So there's kind of been this withdrawal of public support and it's a supply and demand thing. So the, the price of these stocks have gone down significantly to probably all-time lows. And that's, I'll just put a quick plug for why I think now is a great time to come into the space is relative to historical, because of what I just described, there's a lot of exuberance. That exuberance as a whole has a little bit been taken out of the space. And so there's this opportunity now to come in where valuations, partially because of the macroeconomic times now, but also just the industry, valuations have never been any lower. And not only that, relative to the strength of a lot of these companies, that valuation versus kind of risk piece of it is really in favor of investors coming in now. And what are the opportunities in the private equity space for investors? So our community left field investors, we typically, you know, mostly we're investing in real estate type syndications. So are these structured as syndications or are these something different? And is there real estate involved or is it just the operating businesses? Can you just talk about the different sectors that there's opportunities in and what those look like? Yes. I just kind of mentioned what how we've set up um, because I think it's a good indication of the industry at large. So one opportunity is to invest in private venture capital or private equity funds, right? So these are pools of capital that are going and diversifying investment across a number of companies. Then you have you can come individually and be on the cap table as an individual investor within these private companies. And then as you pointed out, there is actually a tremendous opportunity on the, the secure debt real estate side of the industry. Because as we've talked about banks, so for every bank that you've got some banks that will allow you to actually deposit into it, but of those, very few actually lend. So from a debt perspective, the lending is coming from high net worth individuals, family offices, private investment funds, all private, non-institutional. So because again, supply and demand, not a lot of capital being brought into the space, you can dictate pretty high return. You can get pretty high capital returns on the debt side and you have the aspect of being secured in real estate, obviously, there are all kinds of real estate investors who know how to value real estate. And that's just a question of, okay, we understand what this piece of this building, this asset is worth. What's our likelihood? Let's understand the strength of the underlying business. And that's where you know, us as kind of a fund and advisory firm come in and help these underlying companies so that if an investor were to come in and invest in the real estate, they want to make sure that the tenant is going to be able to continue to pay the service, the, the debt, pay the rent. So that requires sometimes support from other aspects of what we can provide. So are these typically, I guess, either, right? So it could be debt, it could be equity. And are they set up in a familiar form to those of us that invest in syndications? Are these syndicated deals? These are securities? Yes, they are set up. I'd say the biggest kind of difference that you would see relative to other investment asset classes is that because these businesses, the ones who are the tenants are licensed operators, they're getting their licenses issued, whether it's a retail license or a cultivation license or a distribution license, all that is happening at the state level. 
And as I mentioned earlier, there's that, that 280E. So the taxation piece, that the prohibitive taxation that I mentioned only applies to licensed cannabis businesses. So oftentimes when you're talking about a deal where you have real estate involved and then a licensed operator, you'll have multiple investments going on where you'll set up the real estate as its own LLC or thing where you can come into that and that's separate from the licensed business. And then you have the licensed operating business. So it's a little bit of the structure of the number of entities involved, which partially has a legal ramification and also a tax reasoning for how that's set up. But aside from that, most of these be like a traditional syndication or investment opportunity. And we have a number of REITs groups that have, for instance, like been in the single tenant net lease area of retail and have seen the opportunities to come into cannabis and get instead of a seven or eight cap, you can buy this on a 12 or 13 cap. So you're buying it at a much higher yield. And then the goal is over time for obviously prices to condense and you get your cash on cash yield. Plus you get some sort of bump when the pricing for these assets normalize and maybe as capital comes in and more bountiful. And how are investors taxed? I imagine if it's just the real estate component, then you're just taxed normally like it's a normal real estate deal. But if you're on the side of the operations, are you just taxed normally like you would be investing in a business? Or do some of those rules that increase the tax on the business, do those flow down to the investor? They don't flow down to the investor. And that's also like when you talk about the risk standpoint, because six, seven years ago, when people were considering for the first time investing in licensed cannabis businesses that aren't legal at the federal level, there was concern, like, am I going to go to jail for being an investor in this business? And so what we've seen over time is that there's enough layers of kind of separation that investors who invest in an LLC, who is then investing in a licensed company, there's enough of a break that the type of impact we're talking about only hits at the corporate level and doesn't ever make its way down to the individual investor level. Okay. So as I said, left field investors, we have our way of doing things and we vet sponsors and then that's the biggest part of it. And then we analyze the deal. And of course, we look at different asset classes and markets. So how would we, if we're looking at a cannabis investment, how do we vet the sponsor? What do we ask of the sponsor? And how do we analyze an actual deal and figure out this is a good thing to invest in? Yeah. So I'm sure you've got experience in this. But my answer is just given the nuances and the how quickly the space evolves and the different aspects of it, I highly recommend finding a sponsor that's got a track record that's been in the industry for a while because there's so much complexity to try to figure this out and make and figure out, okay, I'm going to make one investment and hope that it goes well. Like you mentioned, you made two investments, both went poorly. And now like that obviously impacts your desire to come into the space. So for us, we feel strongly that if you're going to come into the space, your best approach is to go with an experienced operator that's got a track record in the space that you can vet through other people. And it just says, is this sponsor someone that I can trust? And then I think the best thing to do is let them just given the nuances, let the sponsor deploy capital and obviously use your own judgment and gut feel. But I think largely in terms of making that call of does this investment make sense? 
I think it's one more so than ever that you know really would be prudent to, to go through people who are full-time in the space. And as far as the actual deal, I mean, do you just rely on the sponsor or do you actually dig in and look at the metrics of the deal and cap rates and IRRs and things like that? Or are you just saying, hey, you got to really figure out, is this sponsor good at what they do? And if they are, then you just kind of ride with them. It's both. As I mentioned, like when we're looking at real estate deals, there's the real estate aspect, which you want to choose someone who's an expert and a great sponsor, like you said. But then there's the tenant who needs to make sure that if they're not solid in this deal itself, even though the real estate is good, the ultimate returns are, are going to be challenged. Or, so I think it comes to you know, both understanding the sponsor, understanding the deal, the terms, where is that relative to what the market is doing right now? And then it's also, how are you going to ensure this continues to be a profitable investment? And that to me requires, just given the challenges of the space, ongoing support and advice and resources. And so I, I look at it holistically of from the sponsor to the deal to the actual underlying operator. Okay. And are there differences in states? Like, obviously, you're going to invest in a state where it's legal, but are there places to avoid? Like California, I'm not interested. That's one of the places I lost money. Oregon. That deal is also struggling. So the West Coast, I'm kind of like, okay, maybe that's not the place to do it. But is it, do you invest in Midwest or South? What's the differences? Are there places to avoid? Yeah, I think it's a great point. So each state has evolved at its own pace. And as Colorado for the cannabis industry is an extremely mature state at this point, like the volatility and pricing has, it's there, but it's not quite as dramatic as states like Massachusetts or Michigan or Oklahoma, where you've seen in the last year pricing really go down from a raw materials like cultivation standpoint, as well as the, you know, the end product, the consumer. So each of these states is kind of in its own life cycle. You mentioned California. So in terms of getting in with like a new operator in California, wouldn't make sense at this point. What you see in California is consolidation. So you've got more established operators that you have two stores. And now because of what's transpired in California, like investment that you were in, now you have assets and operators that can be acquired for pennies or quarters on the dollar. So that's like in California, there's a lot of consolidation happening. Then you look at states like, you know, New York that's just coming online or, or where I am in Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, like these states are just coming on. And, and what we know is people all over the country consume cannabis. <laughs> right now they consume it illegally in a lot of states, but if you set it up, the demand is going to be there. And what you've seen with newer states, like in the East Coast primarily, is they've gone to a much more limited license model. Whereas California, there's, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of licenses. In Georgia, there's six right now. In Massachusetts, you know, maybe there's a 300 or maybe even less. So there's much fewer licenses as in a lot of the newer states, which helps kind of control that aspect of you got a lot of operators coming in. And then within a couple of years, they can't make it. I think the governors and regulators recognize and see what's happened in some of those other states and are largely learning from it and kind of scaling up over time so that they don't 
create another scenario where you've got a lot of losses in companies that don't make it. It's a fascinating industry. We're up against the time here. The last question I always ask on the podcast is, what, what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? It can be related to real estate or cannabis or just for fun. Oh, man. You told me I was supposed to answer this and I forgot. So I'm going to do like the lamest thing possible. And I'm going to say that Joint Ventures, which is our own podcast that we just started. I listened to it yesterday. We just launched. So that's one. There is one in the cannabis space called Seed to CEO, which I think is a very good podcast. There's other ones as well that are escaping me right now. I should have written it down. But those are a couple just within the cannabis space that I think could be good to listen and learn from. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes. And then if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about cannabis or your operations, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So visit thepanthergroup.co or you can email me at jordan at thepanthergroup.co or Google Panther Group and go to our website, take a look at what we've got going on. And you're always happy to, to educate and to teach people about what's going on in the cannabis space. It's obviously a passion of ours. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for being on. This was definitely not the normal podcast for us, but it was certainly interesting and I learned a lot. So thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, Jim. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at visor.co. Infielders get 15% off. That was definitely uh, not the normal podcast we do, but man, it was super interesting. It's a new asset class, really. And cannabis use is growing fast and states are allowing it. The federal government is loosening restrictions. So as investors, we need to look at everything and the new stuff. Sometimes it's super volatile. Like I said, I was in two deals and as a lender and they one didn't work out at all. I lost the money and the other one is delay, delay, delay. And now, now it's not even a cannabis investment anymore. I'm not sure what it is. So those are some of my earlier investments. I would not do those again. But new asset class, I definitely want to look into and see if there's some opportunities here. Part of it's me chasing the shiny object, but also you got to seek returns and things are going on in the economy right now. Everything's uncertain. You have this new asset class or new-ish asset class. So I think it makes sense to dig into it a little bit. And he said the opportunity is now. Not only is it growing fast, but valuations are down 
because of the economy, because of what's happened in the public markets, people are down on cannabis investments. So that's perfect time to buy, right? And also there isn't much lending because the banks can't lend. So they need private money and private money lending is can be very lucrative. Again, it wasn't for me on my first two, but if you make smarter decisions than I did at the beginning with operators who know what they're doing, I did it with an operator who was a single family home turnkey guy. I don't know why I decided I was gonna throw my lot in with him for cannabis, but it was because it was a while ago when cannabis was the rage and I was just looking for a cannabis investment rather than looking for a really good operator. So that will change the next time I look into this, I'm gonna go with quality operators. So that's one thing to look at. And then you can invest in the real estate side or the operations side or both. And so those are things to look at. The sponsor probably matters more here than on any type of investment that we look at because we're not gonna be able to evaluate these deals exactly the way we would other deals because we don't know enough about cannabis and the operations in the particular states. You're really relying on an experienced operator with a track record. And I would not go near anyone who doesn't have experience and a good track record. Learned my lesson there. So this was super interesting to me and we'll see where it goes. We're going to keep track of Panther and see what they're doing and, and see if there's anything that we're comfortable enough investing with. So that's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.